Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Adam, thanks yes. for coming back on 10% True. It's good to see you again. Um, so quick quick recap for anybody who's listening to this and didn't see the first part. Um, you, you've talked already about your experience going through uh, uh, initially pilot training and then navigator training with the Royal Air Force and joining the Tornado GR1 force uh, being out in Germany. And you've talked a little bit about the airplane and uh, low-level flying and, and some of the basic capabilities of the airplane and the munitions it carried and the role you had in Germany. Uh, so if anybody hasn't listened to that, go back and listen to that because you're not going to cover the same ground again in this interview, I would imagine. I would hope be, not. be curious if you did. Um, but where we got to last time then was you had been in Canada at Goose Bay when you yeah. heard things were kicking off in the Middle East um, and then you come back to the UK and eventually you were deployed um, to Dharan in Saudi. Yeah. Yeah, we... Um... I've got my logbook here to remind me. Um, we flew on the 3rd of January uh, out of Bruggen to Dharan. So before that, we'd actually got home for Christmas, which was great. Um, I know uh, at least one couple, probably more, who took the time at Christmas to get married uh, just before they uh, they, they de- deployed, um, which, you know, is something that they felt that was important uh, and sort of sums up the seriousness of it all uh so yeah we, we got home uh for christmas uh, i think seem to think i drove back on the 27th or something day after boxing day uh into bruggen um uh, christmas eve party and then we were supposed to fly on the 2nd of january i can't remember quite why why we didn't fly um, and I have to caveat all of these stories, the last story with all these, that these are all my recollections. So there's probably a whole load of facts that are incorrect. And um, people who are listening to this say, oh, no, definitely not. It can't possibly have been that. Uh, well, you're probably right. Uh, and I'm not going to argue at all, uh, apart from my recollection. Uh, and my logbook, which says that I flew on the 3rd of January um, with my pilot, uh, constituted crew. Uh, from Bruggen to Dharan, uh, and it was a an eight-hour flight, the longest I'd ever done, and actually the longest I ever did in a uh, tornado. Long enough, certainly. Um, it was probably, the odd thing was, it was the first time I'd done a night-into-day sortie. We got used to doing day-into-night, but night-into-day just seemed a bit surreal. Uh, and I remember the sun coming up somewhere in the south of uh, France, the fr- French coast, um, Nice area, somewhere like that, uh, looking to rendezvous with a, uh, a Victor tanker. 
uh, and it was just all a little bit, or oh, this is it's just out, it was out of the ordinary, and everything we did was out of the ordinary, uh, and so it was it just sort of summed the whole adventure up really. So we we flew down, ta- tanked with a Victor, I seem to remember. Then later we tanked somewhere near Egypt, tanked with a TriStar. Uh, I remember some of the aircraft. I can't remember how many we were. We were probably a four ship. Um, we um, uh, some of the pilots hadn't tanked off a TriStar before, uh, and this was the first time they saw a TriStar. And the tanking dependent, or they're getting to die around dependent on successful tanking and TriStars different it's got a bigger basket in the middle or it had uh and it, different references yeah all aircraft all the tanking aircraft were different uh so you know that again another layer of complexity another sort of difference uh and so we must have landed dar around round about late afternoon early evening something like that uh, and we were uh I think the reason why we didn't fly on the second was because we were the ground spare for the first wave. So I, I vaguely recall that we were the second wave of aircraft to land there. Uh, we were the third Tornado GR1 detachment. The long-established first one was at Bahrain, at Muharraq. Uh, then they'd established one in uh, Tabuk in northwest Saudi. Uh, and we were the last detachment to be established at the very beginning of January uh, with Grand elements, elements being out there, having had been out there for a couple of months, I think. Uh, plus, also the Tornado F3s had been there since August, so they were well established. But we, as I say, first GR detachment, and we turned out to, ended up being a very big one. We ended up with four squadron bosses, with my squadron boss Jerry Witz running the GR detachment. So there was OC nine squadron, OC two squadron, and thirteen. Uh, all there. So we ended up with, I, I, don't, I can't remember how many tornadoes, but uh, a good number of GRs and also GR1As for the recce role. So whilst they were part of the detachment, they were semi-independent in that they, they did their own tasking and uh, uh, we didn't do a lot of mixing with them. But we started off in the in a hotel in the middle of um, uh, Al-Kabahar, I think it is, I can't remember. Uh, the, the the city next to the airfield. Uh, we then, I think, after about four days, we moved into a BAE compound, uh, which was more secure, easier to uh, protect people around it. Um, not there wasn't necessarily a ground threat, but there was always that worry uh, and force protection. It ju- it just made force protection that much easier. So we went from uh, a hotel room to a chalet block. Uh, an old-fashioned Butlins-type um, holiday block uh, where you, pilot and navigator were in one room. And it was it was comfortable. It was fine. Uh, and there was a um, – uh, the food was good. A uh, lot of uh, – all the chefs, as per that part of the world, were Indian or, you know, Indian, Pakistani, Bangladesh. Uh, and so there was some great food on offer, uh, comfortable TV lounge. The only thing that we didn't have was alcohol. But to be perfectly honest, that was a good thing. You know, um, we saw what the Bahrain, the Maharat guys were doing. They were uh, enjoying the, the nightlife uh, a lot, as indeed I would have done as well. I just I think we all felt it was perhaps a bit of a distraction. Uh, that's just a personal opinion. I'm not saying it was a distraction. I'm not saying what they did was wrong, but it just it felt easier not to have that distraction. 
So there was, we knew that the the war was coming. The UN um, resolution ended on the 15th of January and we arrived on the 3rd. So, you know, you've got um, 12 days before that resolution ends. And we all were fairly confident that we end up going to war immediately after that. We didn't think anything would happen uh, and uh, the war was coming. So there was a lot of catching up to do. The other detachments had been there a while. Uh, and so we flew quite a bit. So flew into southern Saudi, into um, uh, Oman, doing a lot of um, terrain following stuff, flying with JP-233 anti-runway weapon. Uh, and doing very, very low-level stuff. Uh, and it was doing the really low-level stuff that we lost one of the aircraft on the 13th of January, which was um, uh, Norm Dent and Kieran Duffy, uh, who were on had been on 14 Squadron at Bruggen. We were 31 Squadron. Uh, but, you know, they, everybody knew each other, despite being... They were on different squadrons, but they were at Bruggen, so we all knew each other. And uh, uh, it was a real shock to the system to to have that um, happen and it really brought home to us the uh, uh, the dangers of what we were likely to go and do. So before we talk about then the, the workup, um, you mentioned four bosses, four squadron bosses. Um, if you read um, the also some of the autobiographies that have come out from uh, Desert Storm, actually there aren't that many, Pablo Mason, uh, you know, uh, John Nichol, John Peters, um, maybe maybe one or two others that have come out. You you, you get the sense that there was maybe some tension between uh, some of the leadership in the squadrons and how they handled different things. Um, was that your experience? Did you see any of that? Um, it's not my experience. That doesn't mean to say it didn't happen. Um, you, the the one, two that you quote were both uh, Bahrain detachment people. So that that was a different detachment, uh, and I genuinely can't comment as to what that detachment was like because we didn't mix with them uh, at all. Uh, I felt that it was running really well uh, at Dharan. Uh, now that may be uh, may have been a, a wrong impression. Uh, don't forget, I was a flying officer. I was the the lowest of the low. So you know the uh, uh, the politics washed over my head uh, by and large. But I was in the squadron boss's foreship, uh, and you know he he ran it well. He um, he, he he was a very amiable boss. He was very approachable. The the ground crew uh, really got on with him, uh, and so you know people wanted to do well by him. It also helped, I think, that we were a tornado gr detachment in amongst air defenders. So the next guy up, the group captain, the detachment commander overall, uh, was an air defender, Cliff Spink, who retired as uh, he went on to be AOC 11 group and does a lot of Spitfire flying. And he is also the world's nicest man. So, you know, you've got good guys in charge. Uh, and so I didn't feel the tensions. Definitely not. Uh, and Cliff Spink, I know, said to uh, Jerry Witts, uh, Jerry, I know absolutely nothing about ground attack but I'll su support every decision you make. You know, you can't have um, uh, an easier uh, detachment than that, really. The the low fly, you, you talked about the rationale for that in our last interview. Um, mm. so, so people can go back and listen to that if they, if they need to. But um, 
how do you um, how do you explain uh, sort of flying into the ground during training? Um, you know, is that pushing things too far, or is that just you you push things that far and sometimes it doesn't work out for you? Uh, a little bit of the latter. Sometimes yeah, your your luck just runs out. Uh, we had, I think it was probably the November or something, um, nine, 1990, we had a Jaguar crash, which was Keith Collister, uh, who was a, a very capable pilot. You know, he had to be to be a, a Jaguar pilot. Uh, and he crashed into the ground. And I can't remember the reasons behind that, but I suggest he just, it was a distraction or something like that. The tornado crash... Um, I think it's fair to say they got a little bit carried away. Uh, they uh, and this is a it's a study that's done at the Flying Supervisors Course, the Flying Authorizers Course, as to why you would do things differently again. They were great, great mates, uh, and I've flown with great, great mates, and you tend to push things a bit far, some or a bit further, should we say? Um, you know, you you it's probably fair to say that sometimes you can do some silly things uh, and i think they were at very low level and they want the navigator wanted to take a photo of the shadow and that was the last thing that was said on the cockpit voice recorder right. so you know they were probably not 100 percent concentrating on the job uh, and i think that's probably a fair statement that's supported by the uh, board of inquiry uh, it's not um, saying anything against them because they were two great guys, and as I said, their their loss was really felt. You, you referenced carrying the the JP two three three, which I think you you mentioned in the, our last interview, but mm. you you withheld sort of discussing it in any detail because we knew oh, we were going to discuss it in, in, this, <laughs> in this interview. Is is now a good time to reference that weapon and, yeah. and the relevance of you carrying it in practice? Yeah, it's a big weapon. Uh, I mean, if anybody looks at any photos, it's, it's great long tubes. Four, I mean, it looks like two, but it's actually four on the aircraft. And I think it weighed something like 5,000 5, pounds. I don't know. Somebody, somebody will be in the books right now, um, correct me. I think it was probably heavier than that. But it was, it was a heavy weapon. It was also very draggy. You know, because it was so big, uh, and so you needed a lot of effort, uh, a lot of extra fuel burn to carry it. Um, and particularly if you were tanking, uh, with the extra weight and drag, you uh, you had to be careful balancing the fuel flowing into the tanks versus the fuel flowing out of the tanks. And it wasn't uncommon throughout the war, to be honest, with any um, system, for us to end up being in very slight afterburner on the tanker just to keep in formation with the tanker uh, and if you do it too far you end up pouring as much out the back as you're getting in and then it's then it becomes fruitless uh, so it's required uh, a lot of getting used to for handling uh, because it was heavy and draggy you know, got that extra momentum so the aircraft doesn't turn as well uh, and yeah, or, and the fuel, like I say, the range isn't quite as good. So a lot of considerations. Uh, it is, it was, because it's no longer in service, it was 215 total HB876 um, anti-personnel mines, 
or 430 in total, 215 per canister. Uh, and oh, I should know this. I can't remember how many um, HG SG357. So that's it. Um, I think it was about 70 in total um, runway cratering weapons, and they were they were very clever. Uh, they drop out of the canister uh, and hang in a parachute until they got to a height, a radar height. And then they would drill down into the runway, beneath the runway, and explode and create a heave. So it wasn't just the hole in the runway. It was all the rubble around it that took that much to, um, uh, to repair. It was designed for East German runways um, and uh, th their construction. Uh, what was known of how they were constructed, the, the ground in which they were constructed in, so sort of standard East Germany, woody, bit sandy, that sort of thing. And the runways were not that big. You'd probably got a runway of, I don't know, 8,000 feet uh, and a couple of parallel runways, uh, parallel taxiways, which could be used in runways at the same time, uh, uh, at the same time, much the same way as Bruggen was. So uh, a formation of a ship probably would have easily shut down the airfield when you looked at the Iraqi airfields, they were enormous. Uh, you're talking 12,000 feet for the main runway. And then either side, you've got parallel taxiways and not just two, three, four. Uh, and then hazards out many thousands of feet. So an aircraft could get airborne from its has and just go straight and not touch the runway at all. So all of these things you're looking to shut down or deny to the enemy. Uh, again, I don't know what the other detachments did, whether they um, uh, looked to go down the runways, but we didn't. There are two settings on the um, uh, on the weapon, along and across, which means along the runway or across it. So you're either with a cross set, it's about a two and a half second drop. So you get a much more concentrated pattern um, because you're aiming to go across the, the runway along it's obviously going to be a lot longer and it's probably something like six or seven seconds to get the length of the runway in well we decided on our detachment that there was no point in trying to shut down the runway but try to harass getting to that runway so certainly our our um, crew when we dropped on the first night uh, and we'll get to the build-up of that um we had a target which wasn't a major target. It was still very well defended, but it was still that big uh, airfield. So we looked at intersecting all of the, as many of the taxiways as we could on the uh, so that they couldn't get out of the hazards to get to the runway. And, and um, how many aircraft were you expecting then to to, to fly uh, on these attacks? Uh, we flew constituted four ships. So we either flew four or eight aircraft. Uh, but for the first waves, uh, first couple of nights, we knew it was going to be probably just four aircraft. Uh, and we knew because it, we were in the boss's four ship that it would be highly likely that we would be flying the first uh, wave, as you would expect. Yeah. Can, can we can we talk a little bit about uh, deconfliction? De so the, um, I'm getting a bit of, of feedback on your mic there, Adam. Nope. Try to move my hands. Look. Good, good. <laughs> um, 
so can we talk a little bit about that four ship um, approach then? So the RAF, I think, is is famous for having uh, um, a sort of very good focus on timing and being able mm. to get to a target with a very in a very small window of time. Um, how were you going to then approach the task of of shutting, if not the airfield in the totality down, then you know those sort of those those cross sections of uh, runway and, um, and taxiway down. By and large, the timing and the routing is dictated by the ATO, the, the air tasking order. So we had the, um, uh, we'd all planned sorties. Uh, we didn't necessarily fly our own plan, and that was the case on the first night. So uh, I can't, we'd planned a couple of sorties for other targets, but the target that we had on the first night, Medeiros airfield, was not planned by us. But the task um, that came in in the air tasking order said Medeiros airfield at this time, which was, I'm just looking at my log book, so I wrote it down, 0117 and 50, 50 seconds on the 17th of January 1991. That's Zulu, so GMT. Um, and the routing was um, given to us by and large. We had to use the Olive Trail uh, tanking route, so that followed just a few miles south of the main supply route, the, uh, uh, the road that runs along the Saudi-Iraqi border. Uh, and I think it was uh, Victor on the way up, um, let down to low level to be low level as you cross the Saudi-Iraqi border. It was quite a short journey, I think, into the airfield and then come off the airfield um, and then pick up the tanker for the way back. Most of the sorties, as it turned out later, as we got a bit more savvy, we only did one tanker, either on the way out or the way back. But this one, uh, because it was a lot of unknown, we did, had two tankers, one out, one back. Um, but, you know, the Tornado is the aircraft for uh, getting the timing right. The kit will do it for you as long as the kit is in, in fine fettle. And that was my job to make sure that it was... Uh, uh, it was accurate. You, you talked last time about obviously respecting the Iraqis as being people who had spent you know ten years or so fighting the Iranians uh, that, that had just come to an end. So they were battle hardened, um, sort of presumably quite savvy, a pretty good kit. Um, what were you expecting to shoot at you, and what what were the chances that they would be successful in in engaging you that way? We expected um, quite a quite a bit of triple A because that's dirt cheap uh, and easy to buy. Uh, so all sorts of calibers, probably not the biggest caliber, not nothing above 57 mil, uh, but that's big enough. It'll certainly hurt you. Um, we also expected man pads, so SA-7, that sort of thing. Uh, but for the tar that particular target, we were told that there was a Roland surface-to-air missile system on the, on the airfield, which French system. Uh, and Roland gives its own complexities because uh, it's a different circular polarization for picking up. So I think it's right-hand circular polarized and uh, most common ones are left-hand circular polarized, which means you lose, you don't pick it up on the radar warning receiver um, as well. You will do when you get the signal-to-strength ratio enough. Uh, it's something like 30 dB difference. Um, and indeed, we did pick it up on the RHWR, which goes to show how close it was. Um, but yeah, the, the, so um, man pads, AAA and a Roland is what we expected. 
and we got. You um, so before you talk about that mission, then um, just some of the the background then about that the JP two three three. So you've got the the cross option, which is dispensing all of those munitions in a two or, sec- or so second window, mm-hmm. but you are having to fly straight and level, and therefore predictably, aren't you, for yes. that amount of time? Um, yeah, you. Um, there were several settings. I think it was something like four fifty four eighty five. 40 or something like that um so that, that's the speed so you, you set the speed that you're going to fly it so it knows what uh, what spacing to drop the the weapons but you you also drop it at 200 uh, minimum of 180 feet could do it lower but you get much more in the way of dudding so a minimum of 180 feet that's fine because the tornado will fly uh, terrain following at 200 feet so 200 feet is what is an easy choice to make uh, but that's why you do it at night so that you, you're taking out one element of uh, threat which is just any old joe with a weapon because even at the a speed of 540 knots 200 feet you're still pretty noticeable it's also southern iraq um anywhere south of baghdad really it's really really flat so there's no hiding you know, if people know that you're coming, they will be able to take a nice leisurely aim at you. Uh, but that's why, like I say, that's why you do it at night. Uh, to minimise, you also have your um, your jamming pod to try and reduce the radar threat. Did you have um, any knowledge of the Americans' sort of pre-planned use of uh, decoys to try and lure the Iraqi radars and surface air missiles and and natural A batteries into sort of revealing their, themselves. You didn't know. That. No, no. There was um, um, what they did was uh, completely separate uh, tactics to what we knew. Um, it wouldn't have made any difference if we'd have known or not. Uh, and you know, if it's not going to affect you, why get told? I suppose that was going to be my second question. Then, did you were you or did you feel like or not part of a much bigger effort? Then, yes, yeah, absolutely. In fact, no, no, to start with. Uh, and I distinctly remember when we were briefing for it, somebody in the formation saying, "What else is going on?" Because you know, you let, let, let's take a, a step back and perhaps we um, talk about how we got to that position. Uh, because we'd been flying the day before, on the 15th of January. And then on the 16th of January, we were, uh, I don't think we were expecting to fly. And then round about, it must have been 4.35ish, something like that. Uh, we were watching TV, some bone documentary on some satellite channel about the UK for getting all, all misty-eyed. Um, and one of our crew came in and said, uh, Adam, Todd, come on, we're we're going into work. And um, we thought, we're not due into work. But it's the day after the UN resolution has passed. Yeah, I think we've got an idea of what's happening. So, got dressed, w- drove into work, uh, and the boss was there saying, yeah, it's on tonight. Um, so, we then got down to the, the planning aspect. To, finding out what the target was, dusting off the maps that had been done for us. And so it was at that stage when we were briefing then, um, that we sort of felt that nobody had mentioned about 
any support or you know what else is happening and it was at that stage we probably felt a little bit on our own so i said what else is going on and you open up the the frago and it's that thick uh, you see that it's that thick um of um uh, other things happening uh, and we thought wow that's pretty something did you not have any um, air defence support. Then were you working with the F three guys? Um, you're you're attacking an airfield after all. Yeah, no, the F three guys weren't allowed to go behind the line or ahead of the line. Uh, something that we mercilessly took the piss out of, um, endlessly, endlessly, right to the end and beyond. Um, I felt it. Yeah, it felt a little bit sorry for them, not too much. Um, they didn't have Mo four IFF, and if you didn't have Mo four, you couldn't go. Uh, sausage side so they spent their time doing combat air patrols protecting saudi airspace and it must have been pretty dull for them uh, but doesn't stop us from taking the mic uh, and so we we didn't have them and i don't recall having any american escort that night we might have done i can't recall it they would have been uh, long range so you know sweeping um escort uh there was nothing close uh, uh and i can't remember what we had in the way of jammers again we probably had something the common jammers were the ea6b's the prowlers and the um the spark box the ef111s uh and a lot of the time i think our um jamming escort was the f111s uh, but i don't recall anything that night to be perfectly honest uh, we probably had something what was your plan going to be then if you came face to face with a fulcrum or uh you know worse still i guess you ended up in a tail chase with a mig 25 because he's he's going to catch you right what yeah uh we had a couple of sidewinders <laughs> that, that probably just served to give you a, a fluffy feeling it also served to crack the skull open of one of the pilots the, the next night i think it was as he did his walk round. He completely cut his head right open um, doing the walk around, missed the, uh, hit the fins, didn't see them. That's another story. Um, no, our plan, we weren't, the plan was we weren't really expecting the Iraqis to fly at night. The intelligence was that they did, they weren't very good at it. So the plan would have been to run away uh, as, as well as we could. Uh, uh, we knew that there were aircraft there. We knew that even if we didn't have a dedicated escort, if we called up uh, on guard uh, on emergency frequency squealing like uh, stuck pegs, somebody would come and help us. But we didn't really expect to face uh, an air threat that night. Did, did you have, um, obviously, this was pre this predates um, not night vision goggles themselves, but the introduction, I think, to service of, of yeah. night vision goggles on the F on Tornado. Um, did you have any ability to provide mutual support to one another then once you were sort of over the target or you were, you were egressing back from the target? Um, because that's a, that's a principle of, of modern air combat, isn't it? Mutual mm. support. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, uh, I think we had hand, um, some night vision goggles available that the pilot could hand hold, uh, which was useless really you know you've got better things to do than trying uh, to handhold them uh, but there was nothing that was fitted to helmets and uh, grs at that stage didn't uh, and for many months later didn't have mvgs 
uh, the cockpit wasn't, the lighting wasn't set up for it. You would have just uh, ended up blooming the goggles out uh, and they would have been next to useless. So, no, it was all visual. And because it was very, very dark, especially when your lights out, there was no mutual support uh, available. And that sort of became apparent later after the target when uh, we just egressed, which uh, I'll come on to. Okay. So, so before we do that, then, um, a, a quick question on, on search and rescue. Um, do, do you remember there being provision for you guys if you were going to go down, that someone was going to come get you? Yeah, they were all... Um, it was all American assets that were going to do the CSAR. So we'd had briefs on what to do if you got shot down. You know, we'd all done our survival training and, and things, but um, the specific American features that we hadn't hitherto been um, accustomed to, so having a, an IR um, strobe, having silooms, um, reflective tape uh, on your flying suits, um, doing a, a lasso with a silooms, on a string, um, all those sort of things that um, uh, that are fairly familiar now. They were brand new to us at the time. Uh, they were all fairly logical. Um, we also had isopreps, which were uh, all your important information plus key questions that you had chosen as memorable, so that in the the heat of the uh, of an extraction, you weren't going to forget the answer when some big um, PJ uh, comes at you and probably knees you in the groin to make sure that you're compliant uh, and then asks you what your first car was um, you, you're likely to remember it <laughs> and, and we, we also knew that you know even if you can't remember that he's going to drag you on board because you're either a downed aircrew or you're uh, an intelligence asset as a prisoner so you know he'll, he'll take you and it probably the, the roughing up you get probably won't vary <laughs> you, you mentioned a couple of times last time we spoke um you were young uh you know you didn't really think about um you know some of the things in terms of mortality that, that, that older older guys do but were you frightened i mean how did you feel about it what was your plan going to be if you ended up in a wadi with your pistol, um, you know, and a bunch of, of Iraqis with AKs bearing down on you? Yeah, I think probably there were two occasions up to that point, or an occasion up to that point that I felt frightened, and that was when we'd had a particularly intense uh, intelligence brief back at Bruggen. This must have been October, November time. Uh, and I thought, yeah, this is really getting scary. But then, you know, you, you sort of, you adapt. Um, but then that first night, a massive mixture of nerves, fear and excitement. You know, nerves that you do the job well, uh, fear because you are going to get shot at and you've never been shot at before uh, and you know you're going to get shot at, uh, but excitement because that's what you joined for. That's what you trained for. So massive uh, a range, range of emotions, sometimes all at the same time, sometimes at differing times. Um the only thing that really did happen each and every time, and I was nervous on occasions after that, um, sometimes I wasn't. Sometimes it was you, you just thought it would be fine. Um, but by and large, your nerves tended to fade as soon as you were in the aircraft because then you're going through the, um, through the actions of getting the aircraft started up and doing your job, uh, and that takes over because you're then into a routine that you're familiar and comfortable with. 
did you have that moment where you looked at people in in, the, in your sort of uh, briefings and, and wondered if they would be coming back? I don't think so. Um, and I think that comes back to a question, uh, the question earlier that I didn't answer that bit. Uh, you know, what was I going to do if I ended up in a waddy with my 7.65 Walther PPK, as an American had said at the BX uh, only a, a few days before, he's got a James Bond gun. <laughs> Look at that little gun. <laughs> you know, it shows you how useful it was. I've never watched James Bond since and watched him with his Walther PPK and thinking, get a man's gun. <laughs> um, I, I don't think we ever thought of I, I, I say we, that's unfair. I didn't really think about it other than try and hook up with your, your pilot uh, and try to do your best to get in touch with the, the rescue forces. Other than that, you know, I didn't, probably didn't like to dwell on it. You know, you sort of, let's just take it as it comes. While we're on this, um, I'll ask it now. It's not the right time to ask because 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 really we want to we want to hear about this the, the first mission and and really it's a question for what happened after that first mission. But I'll probably forget. So let me ask it now. And yeah. if you want to defer answering it, then then by all means, your your call. Um, if you watch on YouTube, there's some pretty good stock footage of RAF tornado guys being interviewed immediately after some sorties. I mean, you, you just yeah. wouldn't get it nowadays, but. Back in 1991, obviously that was acceptable, and uh, I guess it was a media war, the first media mm -hmm. war. Um, but they're really open and honest about their mm -hmm. emotions, and they, you know, one guy says he cried, and you know, mm -hmm. you know sort of, I think another guy, uh, you know, sort of kind of agrees with them and, and says that. Were you in in your detachment, or you with your pilot? Were you that open emotionally? Did you feel the need to? Um, sort of closet away certain things uh, or was the culture, you know, just get it out and share it? Um, we weren't that emotional, me and my pilot. Uh, we were a bit more sort of, I suppose, traditional. That's probably unfair. We just, I, I'm not a hugely emotional person like that unless it's uh, a proper gammon rant. Um, yeah, that's the only time I get emotional properly i suppose um so you know emotional feeling about sort of home and everything no no i i didn't my pilot was married um at the time i wasn't uh we were uh we spoke spoke about it a bit but then we take the mick out of each other uh so yeah. no we didn't really show much in the way of emotions uh, i i don't think you could say whether it was healthy or not whether it's just me i don't know i genuinely don't know um i suppose looking back on it i've been more emotional and looking back on other things in my flying career i've been more emotional um there was one probably the next interview when we talk about chinooks uh, a year exactly a year to the day where i sort of was really overcome by a sense of well just sort of feeling slightly overwhelmed by everything because it was the year anniversary but at the time, not really. Okay. okay. So the uh, the floor is yours, so to speak. Um, <laughs> you you uh, you've been called into work on what should yeah. be your day off. What happens? Right. So as I said, we go in. Uh, the boss says, "Yes, it's on." Um, everybody that was in had an in vested interest in it was there. Um, there were, I think there were the planning, yes, the, the planning crew had been, were there, the ones who had actually planned that um, sortie to answer any questions that they had about 
you know, why they've chosen that turning point or, or questions like that. Um, the execs were there, um, the group captain, the air defender, um, Cliff Spink, was there. Uh, and so we went through the, we were in there very, uh, really quite early on to make sure we got everything covered. So not just the sortie brief or the intelligence brief, the um, CSAR briefing, all, all those sort of things. But ultimately, it was a standard brief. Uh, we went out to the aircraft at about the right time, you know, an hour uh, to go before takeoff, something like that. We, I seem to remember on all of the sorties, we had the four ship plus a hot spare, so a crew that would be winding the aircraft up so it was engines running, and then a cold spare. So, you know, you had two spares for a full ship, uh, which we didn't need at the time. You know, all, all the four aircraft got airborne, as it were, uh, as uh, on that sortie. Uh, and, yeah, as, as I said, as soon as you started strapping in and getting on with the job, that's when a lot of the nerves um, disappeared, uh, for me anyway, uh, and you started to get on with the job. The JP233s were under the aircraft. I'd seen, we'd seen them before. We'd flown with them. We weren't wholly familiar. So, you know, again, you knew that you were going to drop them this time. So make sure all the settings were correct and make sure again that they were correct. Uh, and then we got airborne as a four ship. We were number three of that four ship. Uh, and the plan was to be more or less line abreast as we attacked. Because line abreast meant that you kept what you could of the element of surprise. And because the, um, uh, the DMPIs, the actual targets, the de desired mean point of in impact, were sufficiently far enough apart, you could fly for uh, four abreast because the airfield was so big. So it all worked quite nicely uh, to, uh, to minimise the threat that you, could, that you were exposed to. I can't remember exactly when it happened, but number two had a problem uh, and they had to turn back. Uh, I think it was climb, so, you know, just about to get into the tanker. Uh, and I can't remember why they, they had to turn back, but we felt for them because, you know, first night everybody's geared up for it. And then suddenly they've got a, uh, a failure or an error that's, they really can't carry it. And they would have carried it as much as they could, you know, just to do the job. Uh, but they, they had to go back. So that left us as um, uh, three aircraft. So tanked off the uh, the Victor tanker along the Olive Trail, uh, descended before the target. Modestis is, I don't know, 60 miles in from the border, something like that. Um, and as I said uh, on the previous interview, there were some good masts along the road, the MSR, to update the kit. So a quick uh, good update uh, on the mast. The number one aircraft was on my left-hand side at this stage, still visible because it's got his lights on, uh, except he should have been on the left-hand side, but he was on the right. Uh, and we're sort of looking at thinking, what, not entirely sure. That is number one, isn't it? Uh, and then he piped up and said, is the fix obvious? Uh, yes, Roger. And you just saw him as soon as he said that. You knew that he'd accepted the fix and he saw, he saw him drift behind and over to the other side. And his kit was all over, obviously drifting quite unpleasantly. Uh, and it made the, the very obvious fix very less obvious. 
anyway, he got it in and, and everything was working okay. We decided, we decided at the briefing stage that because the area was flat and because we wanted to try and minimise the emissions, so MCON, uh, we were going to do the attack run in um, Radalt Highhold. So if you select 200 feet, it will fly in at 200 feet on the radar. We were confident it was flat enough that you could do that. It's not. It's quite risky to do that because the radar looks directly down. It's not looking forward. So it's not going to give you any protection whatsoever. But it means that you're not transmitting on the terrain following radar. Uh, and if you minimise your ground mapping radar sweeps to do just what you need it to do, then you're not advertising it to anybody who's looking on a radar warning receiver on the ground or in the air. Uh, the airfield had a big, big perimeter fence around it, uh, a rectangular one, beautiful corner, great radar reflector, dead easy for my first offset. So that was a great confidence boost to know that your uh, your kit's in the right place. Uh, and then I can't remember what the other two uh, offsets would have been. There, there were three, or there were three, um, available to you. Uh, I think I think I probably used the second, then probably didn't use the third because I was confident enough. Um, and it didn't have to be 100% precise because you're dropping across uh, a multitude of taxiways. So it's not as if you're hitting one small building. You're doing an area. So it wasn't so vitally important. Uh, so we ran in uh, at whatever the speed was, 500 knots or something like that, uh, 200 feet um, with a rad out height hold in. Got to the target, committed, and the munitions start going, and there's a white glow beneath you, and you're riding on cobblestones. It's that bumping of riding on cobblestones with this big white glow, and you think, fuck, I didn't expect that much light. I really didn't expect that. Uh, and you're seeing the AAA coming. Uh, but to be honest, uh, and somebody asked me this the other week, I was looking in. I was looking in for two reasons, three reasons. One, at the radar warning receiver. Two, at the rest of the kit to make sure um, it was all in good order. And three, so I couldn't really say that I was looking out uh, and be uh, frightened. You know, so if you can't see it, it's not happening, is it? Um, now, my pilot at this stage swears he saw a, an SA-7 coming towards us. Another good reason for me to be looking in at this stage. I can't swear that I saw it, but I've got no reason to doubt him. Lots of AAA, potential SAM. And then at the end of that uh, drop, you there were two options that you could select. One was to keep the canisters and one was to get rid of them. Now, having previously described that they're like barn doors and big draggy things, why would you want to keep them? So you drop them and you get three drops. So the front two going off simultaneously, I think, and then the back ones going slightly different. Uh, so thump, thump, thump. And it's at that stage we realised that Radout height hold probably had not been the best choice because the Radout has suddenly seen the canisters. Uh, and so it went from 200 feet to 30 feet. Now, the tornado was inherently safe, uh, particularly on things like um, terrain following. So if it sees something that's out of parameters, it gave you an open loop pull-up, which is a 3 to 4G pull-up to make sure you don't hit anything. It's not really what you want. 
not when you're just over the target, when you've just dropped some munitions on some uh, guys on the ground. You don't want to be pulling up over the target. Uh, but that's what we did. 3 to 4G pull up over the target, speed bleeding off. Me with the, the navigator's twitch on the chaff, going, pumping out the chaff like there's no tomorrow. Um, and the pilot trying to get us back down. Uh, we ended up about 3,000 feet over the target uh, or just slightly off the target. Uh, this is where I saw the Roland on the RHWR, despite being the wrong polarisation. So you knew it was there and you thought, oh, I'm a bit close. Actually, we probably were within the uh, minimum engagement zone. So it's probably no bad thing. Anyway, we got down. We, uh, we went back down to 200 feet uh, and we were keen to um, to leave the uh, the area. Okay, nothing on the RHWR. Uh, okay, one mile coming in, running in, one mile. Nothing on the RHWR. Okay. Overridden. Okay, committing. There we go. It's going. It's going. 550 knots. Keep running. There's the canisters. Right. Let's go left. 240. Keep running. That's the airfield. No problem. We're up at 600, I'm chatting. Nothing on the RHWR. Keep running. Keep running. Okay, that's looking good. It's all behind us now. Let's get back down. 220 feet. That's looking good. Bell pass, okay. Check. All right, sir. Uh, okay, nothing on the RHWR as we run off. Another good hit. Okay. Here we go. Yeah. Miles, 25 we had some Roland on the run-in, but I didn't see a missile. No, it didn't flare, thank God. 54, no, I deliberately didn't. I chaffed it. Must be lights up well with the uh, AAA, doesn't it? It does indeed. Jesus. We came very close as we turned off target to Hi. I looked at this thing and you know if it goes under the wing, you're within about a quarter of a mile of it. A wibble. A wibble. <laughs> I saw this sodding thing go under the wing and I thought, now we were for the first time. Uh, everybody used, did uh, did this, but for the first time, everybody was, we were all using the Tornado F3 drop tanks, 2250 liters rather than the, uh, the smaller 1750, I think it was. Um, so an extra uh, amount of gas uh, on the um, tanks, but they hadn't been cleared as in the same way as uh, the the other. Uh, tanks that we normally had. So we found ourselves going off targets um, with the terrain following radar on at this stage uh, with hard ride selected, which gives you a much firmer ride over the, the bumps uh, of the, uh, the ground. Uh, so you're not sort of wallowing a bit more. Uh, so terrain following radar, hard ride, which wasn't cleared. Uh, in the release to service with the big tanks which weren't cleared on the release to service for terrain following doing mac 1.1 which was which wasn't cleared uh but it was very much a case of fuck it 
we're getting we're getting out of here the environmental control system didn't like it that tripped off it got really quite stuffy and hot in the aircraft uh we eventually got it back once we slowed down a bit but we um, we headed out west paralleling the border before then turning left to uh, to go over the um uh, back over the border uh i think we climbed after the border we must have done uh yeah so 200 feet to the border and then climbed up for the tanker now considering that we had done mac one uh and i think the other two had probably done pretty close um we were all ready for the tanker by this stage. But this comes to your point earlier about mutual um, support. We didn't have the first clue as to where people were because we couldn't see them. We'd all just legged it. We, um, you know, it was every man, to, every man for himself, really, and see you at the tanker. So we all pulled up and we all ch we checked in and we were all very pleased that three aircraft had checked in because that's what we were expecting. Uh, and then we started referencing waypoints and we found each other. Uh, and using the radar for uh, a bit of air-to-air, -air, which it wasn't great for, but you could do it, uh, we, we found each other. So the next challenge then was to find the tanker. And uh, Victor was there, he was on frequency, couldn't see him for love nor money. Couldn't see him on the air-to-air -air, uh, mode of the radar, uh, all looking round. Uh, and so we said, can you pop off? Of, uh, we were over Saudi at this stage, so it was all lights on. Uh, and said, we really can't find you. Can you pop off a flare? And he did. Yeah, flare gone. Nothing. Not a thing. Uh, and can you do it again? Yeah, flare gone. Not a thing. And we did this several times. Eventually, we looked behind us. And eventually, we got there. Uh, and the boss plugged in. He was the lowest on gas. Uh, and I think he plugged in with 450 kilograms. Now, considering the minimum flame out was something like that uh, and you weren't no tornado it to my knowledge uh, my limited knowledge uh, had flown less than that that was a bit squeaky bomb a little bit worrying at the time uh, so he spent quite a bit of time on the hose filling up uh, we were a little bit better um, not much better but we were a little bit so we weren't quite so worried Again, this comes down to sort of knowing the big picture, and we didn't really know the big picture. Later, we realised that there were plenty of airfields that he could have just dived into and got a suck of gas doing a hot refuel, which we had never done before. But we did later, uh, guys did later in the war. Um, Americans just plugging in saying, right, I'm going to tell you what to do, sir. I know you've not done it, but shut down the, uh, uh, the right-hand engine. We'll do the fueling and, and all things like that. Yeah, so all these things, we, we, we were very much learning on the job. So anyway, we uh, we plugged into the tanker. It was, I think, getting light by the time we came off the tanker. Flew back, which would have been a couple of hours. Uh, I mean, the whole sortie. In fact, no, it was getting, no, I lie, because it was, no, yeah, it was, it must have been light by the time we landed, because I logged four, four hours, 15 at night and 20 minutes day. So it would have been like just as we were getting within sight of Dharan. So we, um, we landed, taxied back in, uh, and we were quite away from the squadron detachment. We were on a sort of a dispersed area, uh, which is not where we got airborne from. Uh, but we, so we shut down. The thing I then remember is the step canopy coming open. No, no, before that, everybody 
looking at us with NBC suits on because they'd had a couple of scud attacks, but they also didn't know what we'd encountered over there. You know, had had we gone through any, I want to say fallout, but you know that's a nuclear term. You know, any any um, nastiness. Uh, and we, I'm just dropping my mask, grinning like a Cheshire cat, and they've got their, their respirator on. So they sort of realised that we didn't need the respirator. So respirators and that came off. The canopy came open, steps came up, uh, and then I'm presented with a bottle of Asbac in my face uh, by the, uh, the squadron flight sergeant. Here you are, sir. Thought you might be needing this. You know, this is sort of 6 a.m., something like that. Uh, it didn't stop me from having a swig. It was also Saudi, so obviously I didn't. Um, and we didn't, uh, and no Asbac was in country whatsoever. Um, so we... Uh, we, we then got down and, you know, sort of usual congratulations, met up with the others and uh, a bit of back slapping, some photos. So at this stage that you mentioned about people being on the TV, the other aircraft, number four, had been parked a little bit further away. And they got caught by the Sky crew. The Sky News were the TV pool in Dharan. So they got caught and it got syndicated. Uh, and that's where you got Ian Long and Jerry Gerg and saying, you know, frightened of failure, frightened of dying that sort of uh, that quote it became very well known uh, uh, at that time so we we then um yeah uh, all got back together got the boss around to the line hut uh, and the biggest thing and this is the bit that for me really is the build uh, the, the culmination of it all it was shift change uh, and so the the offgoing uh, engineers who'd seen us off that night were waiting for the buses to take them back to the accommodation to get their heads down uh, and literally the ongoing crews had just come on so there was two shifts there waiting for us as we turned up in the bus and as we walked off the bus they all cheered you know just cheering all round and that still sends very much a shiver down my spine to to think about that you know they it's when you realize that you are part of a bigger thing it's not just you uh, uh but the you know it you realize that it's a entirely a crew a squadron thing air and ground crews but you also realize despite the piss taking that they do despite the grumbling they do about air crew there you're still their air crew uh, and yeah and like i say it still sends a shiver down my spine it does seem to me that the, the RAF um, aircrew relationship with the ground, ground engineers is, is definitely closer, is more special than I've seen in other air forces. Um, you know, I spent 12 years as a journalist and I never saw quite the same sort of affection uh, between those two camps as, as I saw when, when I was on an RAF station or visiting a squadron in the RAF. Yeah, uh, I think you've got more experience than I have. I, I don't know. I genuinely can't comment. Uh, I know that, and it depends, it depends on the squadron boss. So we had a great squadron boss who the ground crew loved, uh, and I think, or a little bit by extension, they then liked the air, the rest of the air crew uh, okay enough. I won't, I won't go to, so far as to say love, because uh, there's a reunion coming up, and, and, and I'll get glassed. Um, but, um, yeah, they, you know, they, they liked us. They, they liked most of us. There's one or two that they didn't like. There's one or two that we didn't like yeah. uh, on the on the air crew side and on the grounds crew side. But by and large, we were a happy family. 
And I think it also helped that we were at Bruggen. We were in Germany, uh, where it was a bit more of a, um, uh, a closed shop. Uh, and it wasn't so much of a nine to five existence. So you got to know the guys that much better. So, yeah, you know, we, we, we had a good squadron and a good atmosphere, both before and during and afterwards. So rewinding then to the point at which you're coming up on the target, um, there were a couple of things you talked about. I wanted to just see if we could sort of drill down into a little bit. Um, because because I'm I think I understand what you're to, what you're what you're talking about, but perhaps not everybody will, and, and some clarification would be good. So mm-hmm. the the first is that this is happening in the pitch black. Totally. Okay. As dark um, as I'd ever seen it. So so when you talk about line abreast, the idea is you mm-hmm. get to the target in line abreast, um, because you can't see anything anyone you don't have an air to attack and and maybe you wouldn't turn it on if you did. Um no. how how are you going to ensure that you do arrive over the target? Um in such a fashion we used to plan uh, a thing called parallel track which was an awful awful thing to plan uh, especially as a four ship but it was precisely that it was flying parallel track in imc at night or in bad weather because of the terrain following uh, and so it gave you uh flying a four ship two pairs uh front and rear uh with a space of i think it was something like five kilometers uh, and 30, 40 seconds. But what it did, did was it meant that it was compatible with flying in good weather as well. So if you broke out of bad weather into good weather, you're in a good position as a, as a formation. You don't have to then do any juggling around to try and get into uh, the right formation. Similarly, if you're in the right formation and it goes um, uh, and the, the weather clamps down, you just fly the route uh, and fly the plan. So it was an adaptation of what we were very much used to doing. Uh, and you you had different turning, slightly different turning points on the computer to give you that separation uh, across. Uh, and you, you, you had the timing uh, plan to arrive at those turning points at the same time. And the computer and the aircraft was good enough to be able to let you do that. How much lateral separation were you expecting between aircraft then? I think uh, I think parallel track was five k's, okay. so something like that. Um, and I think that's probably what we flew actually. Uh, so but it was, it was it was slightly different because there were three. Normally parallel track is two, and of course we were three. We were planning for four, um, but then if you go parallel track, you just split off on the target. It, it wasn't too difficult to uh, uh, to plan. Okay, and so that explains why when you mentioned the boss being on the left side instead of the right side, because he was flying with his own navigation gear on his track, and his mm. his navigation gear was off, so he yes. had drifted over. Yeah, okay. And it, it was it was drifting away, and that sort of accounts for possibly accounts for not finding the uh, the tanker as quickly as we did as we could have done on the um, uh, after the target. And, and so then the, the the next sort of clarification or sort of um, sort of drill down then is is the actual bombing bit itself. So you talked yeah. about an offset aim point because uh, so something like the strike eagle, the pilot has a, a navflare system, so he can actually look through in the pitch black yeah. and get a, and get a forward looking for a picture in his heads up display and see that runway intersection. Um, you guys did not have that view, so you've got a pitch black scene in front of you. And so the offset aim point is to tell you, you know, you should be. 
The whole point of, the whole point of an offset is that it assumes that the target is not radar significant. Uh, and of course, if you're dropping just on a load of concrete, it's not going to be radar significant. So the, you make up for that by having up to three offsets before that. So you, your first offset is a kit grabber, uh, a really big one, like I said, the, the corner of a fence. Um, great one for just dragging the kit into the right hemisphere. Uh, and then the subsequent two are for really drilling it down and getting the best um, fix possible, which then means that you can drop on the target, which you won't see on the radar. And certainly at night, the pilot won't see in front of him either. Um, Fleur only came with GR4, not GR1. Uh, and as I said, we weren't flying with MBG. So you know, the only way of ensuring that you can drop on the target correctly is to have three offsets which are intrinsically linked to that uh, drop point of the uh, the target. How effective was the was the mission then? Um, it's difficult because JP233 was designed for East Germany and it wasn't designed for Iraq and the airfields were that much bigger but also they were constructed differently uh, and although I said it was sort of sandy East German sort of um, pine forest type runway that it was designed for it's a different type of sand you know it's the wrong wrong type of snow type of thing um, and so the the runway cratering went into the sand and it exploded and it didn't create the same heave, the same uh, rubble to get rid of. Uh, so it wasn't as effective in that way. Uh, the Iraqis also um, didn't really care too much about the anti-personnel mines. They either left them because it wasn't a bother to them or they hosed them away with fire trucks. Uh, and if they, the, the, the runway, uh, the, the, um, anti-personnel mines sat on sort of springy legs uh, and if they tilted then they'd go off so they were designed that if you try to bulldoze them they'd tilt towards the bulldozer blade and just go through the blade through the uh, the engine block and stop the bulldozer uh, if you hit them with a fire hose they probably tilted the other way so if they went off who cares mm. so they weren't overly effective but they were a nuisance uh, and certainly later on, you know, after a few days, they stopped low-level attacks. Um, we were convinced that JP233 had a use throughout the war. You know, if you had a railway line or if you had uh, a road concentration, you could have used it uh, uh, to, to not, not to stop anything, but to hinder. But the decision was made because of the losses, which were invariably not JP233 attacks. Because of the losses, there was no need to fly at low level. But you have to remember that the GR1As, the reconnaissance aircraft, flew at low level throughout the war because their equipment could only be used at low level. So anybody who thinks that the RAF didn't fly low level after day five or whatever it was is not correct because the GR1As continued throughout the war at low level. Well, that, that seems like a good point then to, to ask. Um, in the days that followed then or in the immediate sort of 12-hour period, what did you hear about the um, successes or the losses of other tornado units uh, in the region? Um, you know, what, what were the conversations that were happening around tactics? Um, the Americans, they did go in low level. Strike Eagles went in low level on the first day. 
Um, but I think they were quick to transition to medium level when when they could. Um, yeah. What, what was the story from your point of view? Uh, well, you know, we we got back and then we were endlessly watching CNN because it was on all the time uh, and following what had gone on. And it became fairly apparent that particularly the Bahrain detachment were flying daylight attacks at low level. And we thought that's pretty ballsy. Um, we weren't entirely sure that uh, why they were doing it, but they were. Uh, and then we heard that there'd been a tornado lost, which were the two Johns. Um, so we, because that was the morning, the following morning. Um, so we, um, that made us take stock of the fact that, yeah, losses were happening. Uh, and then, of course, a few days later, the two Johns were on TV. And the vast majority of us knew it. You know, John Nickel was on my NAV course and John Peters had been a Domini pilot when I was doing NAV training. So we, we all knew them. Uh, and to see them beaten up, that really did um, make us stop and think uh, and gave us a bit more of a uh, need to concentrate on escape and evasion thoughts. Uh, not that there was a great deal else that we could have done. There was certainly nothing they, they could have done, but it made you stop and think, certainly. John, John Nichols, you know, sort of famously is, is honest about, um, from his point of view, what happened um, in terms of he, he feels that he sort of, you know, I think he called it sort of um, fat fingered or, or, or pig switched or whatever. Yeah. It, it goes high loft, low loft, John. High loft, low loft. <laughs> do, you, do you know, do you still, do you still stay in touch with him? Do you, uh... Not really, no, no. I see him every, uh, occasionally at reunions just to say hello and, but that's about it. But everybody sort of, yeah, remembers. That's the way you do it, John. You're right. He he will always um, he he's utterly honest about the fact that he probably didn't press the button hard enough. Uh, and if you don't, it, the, he was doing a loft attack, so that's pulling up and dropping your bombs to make them go that much further. Uh, and if you get the switchology wrong, uh, it just tries to keep the uh, the weapons. Uh, and if you're not expecting that, that's an extra four or five thousand pounds of weight that you're the aircraft's carrying uphill and so it was slowing down and it became a target as indeed it did uh, become so so what was the you know you just said that the the, the low level losses occurred not on on jp233 sources so um what what was the cause of those losses then i mean there's one we just described which was an error um, yeah what were the others do you, do you know i don't Wildly remember it. I think one of them might have been a JP 233, but I seem to think it was perhaps after the target. There was the John Nickel one, they also lost one at Tabuk, where uh, on landing, where they they hit the barrier, um, which was unfortunate that they got out though. Um, I can't remember the early losses. There was one that we lost, which was the weapon. Detonating beneath the uh, the aircraft, which I saw, which was looking at my log book, um, that was on the twenty fourth of January. So that was what uh, five days later, six days later, something like that. Yeah, uh, no, eight days. I can't do my maths. Eight days later, um, where we'd gone to high level and we were doing medium level bombing with dumb bombs. 
you know, looking back on it, that was the world's daftest idea. The the aircraft was not designed to do Lancaster bombing at 20,000 feet. The radar didn't work properly at 20,000 feet. It, you, um, you weren't supposed to use it above 20,000. It was supposed to arc. But you got a really thin band, and it was no, hopeless for ground mapping at that height. But we still went and did it. Uh, and that sortie, we were eight aircraft uh, against the target, which was uh, Rumelia, I think. Yeah, uh, which I subsequently, in the in 2004, I went again on a Chinook, and we went there to do some target practice with some people. Um, and it's just a godforsaken place, and you think, why Why did we send eight aircraft over that target? There was nothing there other than just concrete. Uh, there weren't even hazards. You know, there wasn't even any, there wasn't a building. Uh, but we did it. You know, it was one of those things where you go and do it. Uh, so the front four aircraft were carrying, we were all carrying uh, the new 960 fuse, um, multifunction bomb fuse, which is supposed to be. Uh, it went into, you know, it's probably still in service now. It certainly was at the end of Tornado's life. But it was a new fuse and it was much more capable. You could set um, uh, whether you had an airburst or ground burst and, and intervals and things like that. Uh, so the front four aircraft had airburst on these fuse. Back four had impact fusing. And we were discussing stick lengths and everything on the coach out. None of us had ever seen one of these. It was all brand new. Same later when we had LGBs. I'd never seen an LGB until it was on the aircraft that I was going to drop. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and um, we, we, like I said, we were discussing stick lengths uh, of the fuses. We got airborne as an eight ship. For some reason, I can't remember now why, two of the front four turned back with problems. So we ended up being a six ship. Um, so the front two had uh, airburst fuses, rear four had ground burst fuses, uh, and over the targets, all sorts of mayhem happened. Um, heard a few sort of calls, can't remember really what, what those calls were. <coughs> Excuse me. There was a, um, a big glow beneath... Um, sort of somewhere off in the distance, but not too far off. And is it a an oil uh, well ga uh, off-gassing? Um, it's not a missile. It's not a bomb. What is it? I don't know. It turned out it was our one of our aircraft going down. Um, and then we heard that the, the other aircraft that was also airburst equipped um, was screaming on the radio that they'd been hit. Uh, and so we we dropped our bombs. We um, it was getting light by this stage, so we went to find the tanker. We got the tanker, um, got it in fairly good order, and then we, as in our aircraft, turned round to go back over the border to find this other aircraft that was um, that had been hit. Uh, found him, escorted him to the tanker. He plugged in, uh, and we. Um, um, Looked him over on the way back. Sorry, I'm going to cough again. <coughs> um, and um, they, um, they they were pretty well screwed up. They, um, one of the engine um, exhausts was sort of splaying out. There were clearly some holes in the um, tail fin. Uh, 
and as we subsequently found there were holes elsewhere as well uh, and they got quite a few problems so we escorted that aircraft back to Dharan uh, and let them land uh, which they did fairly successfully oh yeah successfully uh, and the aircraft the engineers did a great job of battle uh, battle damage repair it never flew properly during the war afterwards it was always a pig to fly there was always something wrong with it uh, but they did a good job of, uh, of repairing it but it was a mess it was a bit of a colander because the bombs had fused beneath it the bombs had dropped and the second bomb or the third or whatever had seen the front bomb and it was a bit like us on the on the uh, rad out you know get the pull up it had seen it oh i need to airburst now so it exploded beneath the aircraft with an enough to damage the aircraft and that is what happened with the aircraft that went down so i am utterly convinced that that night we could easily have lost four aircraft we were lucky in that we lost one aircraft we damaged one and of that aircraft that was lost the crew were pow and came back at the end of the war but it could easily been a whole lot worse and I don't think anybody would, who who was on that night or you know on that detachment would um, say otherwise. Mm. It's it's um, so when you talk about Desert Storm and, and the Gulf War, it's easy to sort of really talk in terms of just the Brits and the Americans. I mean, obviously mm. we've got a, a Brit lens, so that's what we do. Mm. But um, you know, the Italians were there too with their tornadoes. Um, I think they were rather less successful. Um, did you have any yeah, interactions they- with them? No, no, they were at a, a different airfield. I'm not sure where they were, but we didn't um, have any interaction with them. We did have uh, interaction with the Saudis because it was their airfield. Uh, we had um, interactions with the Americans because the F-15s were there. Uh, and also the Kuwaiti aircraft that had flown out of Kuwait on the 2nd of August were all at Dharan. So the A-4s and the Mirage F-1s were there with free Kuwait written down the side. Uh, but the the French and the Italians were on different detachments, so we didn't uh, didn't get to see them. You said to me earlier you had only, or last time you said you'd only done the one low level, uh, or the one JP three three attack. Uh, your next sortie was uh, a medium level attack. Yeah, um, we rotated the crews around so that everybody got a, a crack of the the whip. Uh, so we did another couple of nights of JP two three three attacks. Uh, and then we went to medium level. So my looking at my logbook here, um, it was five days before I flew again, six days before I flew again, 22nd of January. And that was a six ship, five 1,000 pound uh, bombs on Talil airfield at uh, medium level. Mission 1001 Golf, Penrith 03. There we are. Um, three hours 40 at night. So a bit shorter, medium level, um, six aircraft uh, dropping, yeah, like I say, dumb thousand pound bombs. And it was the subs- the next sortie two nights later where we lost the uh, the aircraft I've just told you about. Had you seen uh, any response from the Iraqis that was unexpected? Um, you talked about them not wanting to fly at night. Um, I think they did do some flying at night. Um, you know, there's certainly, mm. you know, there, there are certainly stories I've read about them intercepting at night. Yes, they did. Yes, it's it's wrong to suggest that they didn't. Uh, it's, it was our perception that they wouldn't. Um, uh, and I, I remember watching uh, an American F-15 
coming in, I think, after at the, at the time that we'd just landed on the first night, doing a Canadian break, because uh, he'd obviously got a uh, got a kill. Um, it was probably Steve but, Tate. Steve Tate uh, was uh, first fighter wing. It was that was yeah, because they were yeah. at Darran, weren't they? Yeah, 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 quite possibly. Um, no, I don't think there was anything that we were surprised by. Um, I, I suppose, you know, we, well, we were surprised to hear that they were going to Iran. Uh, we didn't, there was nothing that we witnessed whilst flying that surprised us, I don't think. Um, but the intelligence did surprise us. Uh, and it surprised, like I said, flying to Iran uh, and burying the aircraft. That just seemed to be utterly bonkers. You, you mentioned, I think, I don't know if we were recording at the time, but last time we, we talked um, that they, they got a bit of inventive uh, in the way they employed the surface-to-air missiles. Mm. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the, the, the last tornado shootdown that happened, which was um, Steve Hicks that was uh, in the back, who had been the nav course ahead of me, uh, he was killed. Um, they were medium level, I think it was somewhere near Baghdad, uh, and... They used an SA-6, I think, a surface-to-air missile, um, optically laid. Now, nobody had ever done anything optically laid. Um, we were used to Russian training, which was utterly doctrinal. You will do it this way and you will not deviate. Uh, otherwise, you'll end up in Siberia type thing. Um, and um, the Iraqis got inventive uh, and they did not illuminate the formation. They saw the formation a lot of the medium-level sorties we did, we were contrailing, uh, which we, it's difficult, it, it seems painfully obvious, that you're contrailing, well, why would you do that? If you're not really, if you've not got anybody looking properly across and well behind, you don't actually see it, because the contrails don't start until a good few hundred yards behind the aircraft, uh, and so if you're not looking all the way back, you, you just don't know that you're contrailing. Uh, and we got pretty, um, we got used to that phenomenon. So we, we got used to sort of looking for it and calling it uh, and changing the height to try and minimise the contrast. So they optically tracked this missile, fired it, uh, and then only at the very last minute uh, did it get uh, active homing to hit the target, by which stage you get far too little thinking about it. Um, what was being shot at then... Did it happen every time? What's the sort of evolution in, the, in your sort of emotions towards that experience? Well, the, the good thing about we we went to daylight. Um, once we got um, LGBs, we went to daylight sorties. So again, just sort of looking at my logbook, that was probably early February. Yeah. Um, y yes, because I did an, a nighttime sortie on the second February, and then after that. 5th of February, uh, it was all daylight against an oil refinery. Uh, that was a great target. I mean, that went up so fantastically, you'll never believe. Um, <laughs> and you could see whether you got a direct hit. Um, but um, the, the advantage is you can't see flak as well. So it's not as scary. <laughs> so, you know, by the time we're going to daylight, unless it was real big flak and you can see the pops uh, of smoke, you don't really know that you're being shot at as well. I suppose... You have to assume you are, but you don't know. So if you don't know, it's clearly not happening, is it? Um, so I, I can only assume that I was 
that somebody was shooting something in my general direction um, throughout all of the sorties that I did. But there were certainly some sorties where you think this is going to be, this is fine. It's not, not too much of a drama. I'm used to this, you know, trying to bomb a, um, put an LGB in, onto a road bridge at um, Nazareth or somewhere like that. Not too... Uh, not too well defended, you know, a couple of missile engagement zones perhaps en route, but nothing too bad. You'd think, yeah, this will, this will be okay. I've got um, um, I've got SEAD support. won't be a drama. But there was one uh, particularly which was up near um, Baghdad, and there was something like 15 or 16 overlapping measures, and that's that was scary. Uh, and you could tell that you know, you could tell the difference in the aircraft automatically because on the on the easy ones, the milk runs, yeah, there was a bit of banter between me and the pilot. Um, on the way up, invariably, I'd have the radio on, HF, listening to the World Service, catching up with the news. On the way back, probably put a tape on because you've got the, uh, the tape recorder where you load the mission data. <laughs> you can also play the, the cockpit voice. Well, you can also play some music. Uh, and I, I have a, a bag full of cassette tapes and uh, what, what well, let's put something on there's only one occasion where my pilot put his foot down and it was um, he really didn't want to listen to the doors <laughs> which I, I yeah I, I thought well, what's wrong with listening to the end I think it's quite a good song uh so, can we change the tape please Adam yeah all right yeah I'll listen to it later uh so you know the, on the easy ones that that was fine on the one to Baghdad where there were umpteen uh, overlapping measures we barely said a word to each other, barely said a word, uh, apart from obviously what you need to do to fly the aircraft. But we were just so concentrating on what the job was in hand, uh, not wanting to miss anything on the radio, but also just within our own thoughts of what could go wrong. Uh, so you, know, you can tell. And that's that's flying, to be honest. You know, you can be having the biggest banter and somebody will come up on the radio or something will happen. You'll hear a noise or whatever. And the crew just stop, just utterly stop. The banter just stops. And it's what do we need to do? So, you know, it, it's just the way it is in flying. But it was very noticeable. A MES is a, is a missile in engagement zone. Right? Yes. Um, yeah. and, and so Baghdad was known as a super mess in, in mm. itself. It had all these things. So, so would you? How, how would you? How would you handle that? Then you you fly. You try and sort of thread the needle through, or you just sort of skirt the edges of it. Um, yeah, well, it, it depends on you know where where you're going. Yeah, you try to um, skirt the edge or um, try to find the the least overlap, as you say, thread the needle. Uh, whatever you needed to do to get to the target as safely as you could. And out again, uh, and considering that you're going to fly out a different way to the way you came in, just because that's good practice. Uh, you also trust that you're going to have SEAD support from the Americans. Uh, and there were occasions where, certainly at night, there was some great flash come down. And, what the fuck? Pressing away on the chaff button, somebody's shooting at me. And then you hear Winchester, because it was uh, a, a, a weasel F4 shooting a harm down and yeah thanks fellas you could have perhaps called earlier um because i've just i've just taken five years off my life uh, and i might i might need to change myself when i get back um and um uh, yeah so you, you knew that they were on the tasking order you knew that they were on the radio 
but by and large you couldn't see them until things like that happened they think oh they're actually quite a bit closer than i thought uh so it was sort of reassuring to know that that was happening and to know that you did have a full package support uh, and there were certain american squadrons uh of the the seat guys uh, the ef 111s and whoever who actively wanted to escort us there mm. because i think they just enjoyed doing it mm. you know they um uh they liked to to work with a group of people so we used to get calls to say where are you going tonight can we escort you which That's is great brilliant. brilliant yeah um you've mentioned lgbs which uh in you know today's climate could could mean a completely different thing to what we're talking about um, yes. but, That's so, true. so 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 laser guided bombs um lgbs what, what was the journey then to uh, being able to you know put one of those on a target um the journey was very fast and uh, very steep um we, as I said, the first time I saw a laser-guided bomb was when it was on the bottom of the aircraft, or the three of them were on the bottom of the aircraft, that I was about to go and drop. Never seen them before. We'd spoken about them. We'd never trained with them. It was complete evolution of tactics that we hadn't anticipated at the beginning, but became necessary. Uh, and so we flew with three aircraft, three bombs on each aircraft on a four ship we'd meet the two um usually two buccaneers uh flying out of bahrain uh, and bahrain and Dharan are what 20 30 miles apart so it's very easy to for uh, to facilitate a, a join up uh we then fly in loose formation with them do some tanking as if we were one formation uh fly to the target they would spike uh, and we would just drop and to be honest you're just looking to be in the right area of sky to drop uh, as a as a bomb carrier to just drop the bombs and then the buccaneers they they, they, they with the spike they take the the radiating um the, the emissions uh, and lock onto the um onto the target uh, I, I think there was a misconception that LGBs were more successful than they were. We probably had a 50% success rate. Uh, some of them failed to guide um, because probably we were on in the wrong piece of sky. Uh, some of them didn't hit the target because they'd run out of energy. If you drop them too soon and they don't get the basket till late, they're flying, they're doing their best to, um, to get to the center line and they've just completely run out of energy and dropped short. So probably because we were less experienced, we didn't have the best success rate, but we, it was okay, you know, uh, and we had some great successes, as I said, oil refinery. Um, that was just phenomenal watching the bomb going into that. Um, uh, I mean, I shouldn't smile because people undoubtedly died with it happening, but I just think it, uh, it was just the most spectacular thing I'd ever witnessed uh, in my life at that stage. Uh, we also had a lot of weather scrubs get to the target, complete cloud cover, bring the bombs home. So, you know, it, it, it was okay, but it wasn't the most spectacularly successful period of bombing, I would say. Mm. So, so the, you know, the, the technicalities behind that, and are they, they've got a pod, I think, called Pave Spike, right? And so that, mm. that, that looks at the thermal properties of whatever it's looking at, something on the ground, whatever, mm. and, and that's how it differentiates between 
sort of the ground and the object it's looking at. And then you drop a bomb and you've got to be in a certain proximity so the bomb can see the laser reflections coming from yeah. the paper site pod as it lasers the target. And so so did you, um, you know, you, you said it was steep and, and sort of fast, that that journey. Had, had they done a lot of testing? Had they done any testing back in the UK or were you doing this sort of operational test and evaluation there in, in the desert? No, I mean, it, this was not new for tornadoes. Um, the um, the Larbrook Force had, uh, I think, 15 or 16 squadron, had a, an LGB commitment. So they knew uh, how to do it. Uh, but it was one of those things. It was like tanking. They, um, the Germany squadrons didn't do tanking before the first Gulf War because that was only a need for the mark for the UK based squadrons. Mm. Uh, but then everybody had to do it and everybody had to learn. So the undoubtedly the 15 and the 16 squadron crews, if that's those were the, the crews that were committed to NATO with LGBs, they undoubtedly were far more successful than we were. Uh, but we were very much learning on the hoof. So there was nothing new about tornadoes carrying LGBs and dropping bombs dropping LGBs from the tornado. Although I think the Larbrook squadrons, their experience of spiking, of designating, was probably from ground troops rather than from aircraft. But they probably did a, a mixture of both, to be perfectly honest. But we'd never, certainly our squadron, the people who were on that detachment had not seen LGBs. Right. I'll have to, um, I'll share it with you, but I found an interview with you. Um, it was like BBC, <laughs> BBC Midlands or something out, out at, at Dharan. Is that the one um, with my mum and dad on it? No, no. Ah, because my mum and dad got interviewed by BBC Midlands oh, as well. did they? They, they, <laughs> they might be. I, I watched, it's it's uh, it's just on YouTube. I was just looking through material and I thought, oh, that guy looks familiar. Um, and and sure enough, it's you. But you're talking about sort of not, not enjoying being... Yeah, I think you say you, you joined up to fly, not to get shot at. Um, but, but this is before you come True. home. So so how long did you spend out there? And, um, you know, what are your overall recollections of, of the experience? Uh, I I didn't spend, I suppose I spent one of the shortest amount of times for any other crews there. Because like I said, we flew out on the 3rd of January. And I think I flew home on the 18th of March. So yeah, ceasefire was, what, 28th of February, something like that. Mm. So two and a half weeks after the ceasefire, we flew home. So what's that, 10 weeks, something like that? Yeah, 10, 11 weeks. Um, not long. You know, some people spent six, uh, six months there uh, on detachments. So, you know, it, it was fairly short, but it was an intense short. It was massively intense, you know, um, going to war for the first time with your squadron, with the guys that were your mates that... And as I said, because we were Germany, we tended to be that much closer, lived in each other's pockets, if not in the mess, or, you know, going around to people's houses on the married patch on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday lunch, you know, the usual round of uh, whatever. Um, and so, you know, doing all that with your mates, something that you trained with, losing a couple of people, you know, the emotion or a couple of aircraft, the emotions that go with that, and then going home back to Germany um, it was it was a real mix of emotions you know uh, thankful that you that it was over thankful that you'd come through it thankful that you'd had the experience um, a little mournful that that was probably it you know that um, 
you, you'd done something completely massive and what do you do now? Uh, but also keen to get home and see your family. Did, did the, um, and that's a, that's a sort of, I think that's reflected in Pablo Mason's book. He talks about the anticlimax of coming back. And I think, you know, for him, his, his Air Force career ended not in, in a way that he would have liked because, mm. you know, there was an accident and, you know, whatever. I won't get into that because that's his story, but nothing to do with, to do with us. But, um, you know, do, do you, how, how do you then uh, handle that? emotion that you know you probably peaked insofar as going getting shot at doing the mission putting bombs on target surviving coming back um, and now you're back in that peacetime environment what do you do to make sure that you don't i don't know do something stupid or take risks or you know find your next um, adrenaline boost from something silly i don't know i don't know how we handled it to be honest i I remember the the boss being very keen to um be very aware of those who had stayed behind particularly the crews that had gone out there in the first wave expecting to go straight to war and then it not happening and then getting raw monitored back and and then watching the b team do take all the glory um so there were those guys the really experienced guys who should have done the job uh, but at the same time whilst we were away there were new guys coming in from training which there was always going to be, uh, and so there was. It was very pressed upon us not to be too boastful about it. Not you know, to, to be very mindful, to be very um, careful of what you said and when you said it, uh, for all the right reasons. Uh, and I don't think there was anything wrong with saying that. Uh, and I think it worked. Um, I, I think the the whole idea of sort of you know sort of anticlimax not doing anything silly that was also very aware people were very aware that we we had pushed the boundaries we'd pushed the rules we'd broken the rules uh but now you can't do that Uh, and i think it helped by the fact that we went on leave for about three weeks so you know there was a big air gap between um uh, coming back and flying again and in fact again you know just before coming on this uh, i looked at my logbook i flew back my last sortie in the Gulf was February the 27th, so the day before um, the ceasefire. We then weren't allowed to fly uh, after the ceasefire, ceasefire, so we were kicking around in Saudi with not a great deal to do. Uh, I then came home 18th of March, probably had about three weeks lead, leave, which then took me into April. Uh, and so I didn't fly between February the 27th and April the 18th. So, you know, you're then, by that stage, you're getting perhaps a little bit rusty. So, you know, all the bravado you probably had has gone. And now you're thinking, oh, what, what do I do? What's the next bit? Uh, you know, I have to remind myself. And, uh, you know, you, you, you're then having to get back up to speed. But the, the first sortie back was a, an SSP, Singleton Strike Profile, around northern Germany and some general handling. It couldn't have been more noddy. A single aircraft flying around the North German plane and some general handling. So, you know, that was obviously, that was for me. The pilot was also on our detachment, so he'd also flown out uh, in, in Saudi. Uh, so it was for both of us, get back in the groove, you know, understand the rules of flying Germany, understand how the aircraft does handle, um, you know, do some instrument flying, uh, a few instrument approaches, all that sort of stuff. 
Did, did the force, the tornado force, uh, debrief overall in terms of its performance? Um, were, were there lessons that came out of it that, that are noteworthy that you could share? Yes. What, what I can share, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think it was lessons of JP233 was largely conducted well. Uh, and I think it's important, you know, conducted well rather than a successful weapon. Because um, the, the, the weapon went out of service not that long after that. Uh, I think they realised that it probably wasn't. Uh, it was yesterday's weapon because we'd done um, LGBs, uh, precision weapons, they were the, the way forward. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, you know, low level also became less of an emphasis. L low level was the be all and end all. It was a way of life. Uh, it then became a tool to have. Uh, and so we also continued doing a lot more high level, medium level, 20,000 feet um, sorties, um, practicing laser guided bomb attacks. Uh, you know, the tactics had evolved, uh, and I think that's what came out of it. Mm. And you, uh, personally then, you didn't stay in the tornado for too much longer? No, I came back um, March 91, left the tornado force July 92. And the reason behind that was were the, the Cold War was over. Germany had reunified on the 3rd of October. Uh, yeah, October 1990, so just before the Gulf War had started. Um, we were uh, we would all be friends with East Germany had gone, the Soviets were big buddies, in theory, they weren't. Um, low flying in Germany had finished uh, uh, about a year or, or uh, you know, within that year of the, uh, the first Gulf War. Uh, and um, options for change had got rid of a lot of crews. So Larbrook had closed as a tornado unit. Uh, the Buccaneer force was shortly to go. They went 94. The F4s went in 92. So there were a whole load of aircrew looking for jobs. It was a lot easier for pilots to find jobs because they could go to be qualified flying instructors. There were many more of those jobs. Um, but there were fewer jobs for navigators. So to get a second tour on tornadoes, you either had to be brand new on the fleet or exceptionally good experienced. And I was neither. You know, as I said last time, I was Joe Average. So I was lucky to get another flying tour because some navigators did ground tours, um, air traffic controller or army liaison tours. Uh, I got a tour doing uh, being an instructor at the nav school at Finningley which is great fun uh, and you know, kept me flying still. So I flew Jack Provis uh, to start with, then Hawks. That was great because we didn't have students for the first six months because we were changing the syllabus. So it was a proper uh, flying club. You know, where should we go for lunch? Let's go to Lossy. Yeah, right, let's do that. Uh, and it was, it was like that. It was immense fun. Loved that time. Um, and then I... Um, moved to Cranwell when they closed Finningley because my house was not that far, it was commutable. So I went on to the Bulldogs and to Carnos. Uh, and then after three and a half years, I was going to go back to Tornado. Uh, and this was the, uh, comes back to your point of, you know, the anticlimax, what do you do? Well, I'd done what I trained to do. Uh, by that stage, they were doing 
high-level reconnaissance, effectively, flights over Iraq. And the whole idea of doing that was really quite dull. And I'd also had this idea that I quite liked helicopters. The whole Northern Ireland thing fascinated me, utterly fascinated me. And they'd opened up helicopters to navigators because pilots could do qualified flying instructor tours. Navigators had to do something else. And helicopters had spare seats. Pumas had flown with a pilot and a crewman. So they had a spare left front left-hand seat. Uh, Chinooks invariably flew with two pilots, but they weren't. Uh, they could do with more crew. Uh, there, there'd always, always been a handful, a smattering of navigators on helicopter squadrons. Uh, so the precedent was there. You know, the, the navigators did fly, but they were s- sort of op-sea-type jobs, but they flew. But the precedent had been set that you could put a navigator onto a helicopter. So they opened up the um, helicopter world for navigators. Uh, and quite a few people went over from F-4s, from tornadoes. So at the end of my, uh, my instructing tour, I said to the poster, I don't want to go back to tornadoes or fancy helicopters. Uh, and it was, OK, if that's what you want, fine. So I did. Uh, and I spent a year at Shawbury training to be a helicopter navigator. And then spent 10 years on Chinooks. Which seems like a good point to... It does, doesn't it? Say, OK. <laughs> Adam, thanks for talking about the Gulf War. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about Chinooks. Yeah, okay. I've got 10 years of that. The Gulf War was only 10 weeks. <laughs> well, that will mean 30 hours of interview. Okay. <laughs> you, you signed yourself up for it. Okay. Yeah. You know, I said uh, start it, so I should have had a beer. <laughs> Adam, that's brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, no, you're welcome.